0: Hi, this is Isaac Arthur, welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula-exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by Brilliant. Imagine living on a world where you could see all the starry majesty of space, But it was denied to you by firestorms in the sky, in a constant rain of meteors. Now imagine that world was Earth. So today we are going to be looking at Kessler Syndrome, a cascade effect in orbit of a planet that clutters it up with dangerous hypersonic debris, and discussing how that can happen, what you can do about it, and the impact it would have on a world. In many cases, this impact will be fairly literal too. A little while back, one of our regular editors on the show, Jerry Gorn, suggested to me that we might do an episode looking at how Kessler Syndrome might happen naturally in orbit of a planet, and if that might make civilizations native to such worlds unable to ever pursue space colonization. I instantly leapt on the idea and put it on the schedule, but it reminded me that I've been meaning for some time to do a Fermi Paradox episode on various scenarios that might keep a technological species planet-bound, like higher gravity or thicker skies or several other options, and so we will be doing a companion video to this one, focusing on those other options for this weekend's Sci-Fi Sunday episode. As always, make sure to hit the subscribe, like, and notification buttons for lots when that and other episodes come out. Today though, while we will discuss that Fermi Paradox case of Kessler Syndrome, natural or artificial, I think we should start by discussing what the heck Kessler Syndrome is, because it sounds more like a disease than a space phenomena. In truth it has some similarity to a disease too. Kessler Syndrome, also known as the Kessler Effect, Collision Cascade or Ablation Cascade, was proposed in 1978 by astrophysicist Donald Kessler as a concern about space pollution. As more and more satellites went up and rockets went up, more clutter accumulated. Now space is huge, but virtually every object we put up is in low Earth orbit, the region above the atmosphere to about 2000 kilometers or 1200 miles up. It is also the place where objects orbit Earth every couple hours or less, and are ripping around at about 8 kilometers or 5 miles per second. It is a huge volume even when contemplating millions of objects, a volume bigger than all of Earth's surface and mantle, but the objects in it move fast and they stay there for years. Remember that the atmosphere doesn't just end abruptly at some certain altitude, it just gets exponentially thinner and thinner as you go upward and outward. And the defining attribute of low Earth orbit is that it's as close to Earth as you can get to have little enough air drag that it's possible to keep something at orbital speeds for many orbits without constantly burning fuel. Now it is astronomically improbable that two of our satellites should ever run into each other while up in orbit, even given that one a meter wide is plowing through a volume of nearly a million cubic meters a day, because there's something like a billion trillion cubic meters of low orbit space and two such objects encounter each other at the same time, in that volume, is about that probable for any given moment. Indeed, even when we've got a million such satellites up, these odds don't change much, Satellites might occasionally collide but the odds of it happening to even one of those million during their typical operational life would be rather slim. Of course that can be a touch misleading because there is a lot of junk up there and a lot of satellites on similar paths, and we estimate we lose about one satellite a year to debris collisions, and once two of them collided. That's usually assumed to have been accidental but it is worth noting that it's pretty easy to make them intentionally collide, artificially and intentionally generated Kessler Syndrome is a real concern as a potential threat. However, space is full of plenty of natural objects in orbital space too, ranging in size from grains of dust to dinosaur obliterating asteroids. Earth gets hit by about 5,000 tons or 10 million pounds of stuff every year. With more that wings through orbital space and either doesn't hit Earth itself or orbits around many times before hitting. Let's say one thumb sized rock hits a satellite or a space station or a similar. What happens? Well, let's say it massed about 10 or 12 grams and slammed in at roughly orbital speed for a single megajoule of kinetic energy exchange. That's hundreds of times more energy than your typical bullet has, and indeed is roughly the energy of a stick of dynamite or hand grenade. But on impact, it will behave a lot like a bullet. With such intense impact energy, it could easily disintegrate, but even if it mostly holds together, it will blast fragments of itself and the satellite outward, quite violently in many directions. If we were down in the air, the air would slow these fragments and gravity would pull them to the ground after a short blast radius. In low orbit though, while many of those pieces would end up on trajectories taking them down into the atmosphere or out of Earth orbit entirely, Thousands of objects carrying bullet-level energies might hit something on the way out, but a lot of those fragments will end up in new, semi-stable orbits around Earth, where they can crash into something else, something also moving at orbital speed but on a different path, resulting in collisions at even higher relative speed. And even if a satellite and a debris chunk are on very different orbits, any two orbits at the same altitude intersect in two places, Each subsequent collision has a good chance of shredding or blading more material off the next object, causing a cascading effect of more and more collisions. This is the syndrome or disease aspect, because in and of itself a single satellite getting mauled and turning into debris isn't too bad, but it's actually contagious. The more objects you have up there, the more likely are to get collisions and debris, the more likely such a cascade is to start, and the more intense such a cascade can get. With so much empty space up there, the odds of a collision might be pretty low on any particular day, but these bits will be flying along for years, if not decades, awaiting their opportunity. In fact, you might be tempted to visualize Kessler Syndrome as a sky cluttered with debris and ships passing through being destroyed immediately. It would be more accurate to picture the orbit still looking mostly empty but with objects in it having a very short half-life, an average period in which they have a 50% chance of being destroyed. In a relatively mild but still disastrous version of the scenario, new satellites might be just fine for a month or two on average before something hits them. That's not exactly a dense debris field, but it certainly keeps you from having a functioning satellite network. In more intense cases though, such as the obliteration of a developed orbital infrastructure massing the many trillions of tons, those half-lights of new satellites might measure minutes. I will say I'm not a big fan of the term itself, Castle Syndrome, I favor Kessler effect or an orbital collision cascade, but the term seems fairly locked in these days, probably because the other two just don't sound very dramatic. Now once such a cascade begins, it will not stop until everything that can get shredded up there gets shredded. Armoring your ships and satellites will just provide more material to turn into shrapnel, unless you armor them very, very heavily, and correctly, which is doable but then every launch becomes enormously expensive. And it makes low-cost launch options like orbital rings, space elevators, and space towers much harder to maintain safely without being destroyed by debris. See our Upward bound series for more discussion of those launch methods and the cost of launching bigger or armored vessels. It needs to be understood that by and large this is not an instant effect, though it could happen very fast if someone blew up something big like an O'Neill Cylinder, which is also rotating fairly rapidly to spread out its debris on many more trajectories. Normally though, we would imagine a protracted period of dangerous debris building up till it went critical, it's not a single instant explosion ripping out to trash everything in seconds. The slow buildup does give you time to react and intervene too, and there are numerous but expensive ways to clear the debris even once the cascade begins, but you definitely want to prevent such a cascade from starting and to have the means to stop it ready before it begins. If it happened to us right now, with us barely having a toe in the proverbial water, the results would be bad. Communication would be severely curtailed, GPS satellites would fail, and military operations would be hampered. Our ability to detect ICBM launches or major fleet movements and similar would break down, meaning nuclear first strike options would become more viable as a winning strategy and the problem with winning for strike strategies is sometimes it provokes folks to use them for fear that the other side might do so first. By and large, it's a first strike victory option, not mutually assured destruction, that tends to result in tense and arguably irrational decision making, not something you want involved with the ownership of weapons of mass destruction. Unfortunately, Kessler Syndrome, unless the debris field becomes very, very dense, which it might be shortly after a cascade, would have minimal impact on the reliability of the ICBMs, as they are not even making a single complete orbit, and as I mentioned earlier, we are generally contemplating scenarios where satellites will have half-lives of dozens if not thousands of orbits. On the other hand, ICBM reliability might be very handy, since nukes in high altitudes is one way to clear Kessler Syndrome debris. Although we have to assume that it will be a geopolitically tense time in a Kessler scenario and launching ICBMs even with good intentions might lead to some violent misunderstandings. All the easier when communications are severely hampered by a ruined satellite grid and global panic. Moreover, we are sufficiently relying on satellites economically that satellites being out of play for decades is almost bound to cause an economic crash. Which is definitely not a great place to be when folks are worried about their neighbors and contemplating war. So, again, the cascade is best prevented, and barring that, all efforts to be bent to quickly clear the cascade during buildups or after as quick as you can. It would be a good idea for nations to have their clearance procedures fairly transparent and available in advance to minimize spooking each other, too, given the nature of such clearance procedures, which is basically guns, bombs, and drones. These are likely to make your neighbors worried if they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) It should also be understood that if you miss your window for preventing or stopping this cascade, this effect can last quite a long time but it is not eternal. An object randomly moving on a trajectory after a collision in low Earth orbit has a pretty narrow window of trajectories that won't put it into Earth or its atmosphere, either of which would see it gone very quickly. A fair number of those trajectories would be at escape velocity too, so that it disappeared for good, so that's much more likely to occur for Kessler Syndrome up in higher orbits. For chunks that do end up still in orbit, there is still some very thin atmosphere there, slowing everything down ever so slightly, making every orbit slowly decay. The Earth is also not a perfect and homogeneous sphere, and the Moon does not stay in the same place relative to Earth, so there is no such thing as a stable low orbit. And any time the orbit of a chunk gets perturbed in a way that takes it down lower for even part of its orbit, it will get slowed down even more on every orbit. In fact, strategies to clear space debris do exactly this just nudge it into an orbit that dips down into slightly thicker atmosphere, and let Earth's greatest natural defense shield do the rest, burning up the debris. And at the same time the atmosphere is slowly decaying those orbits, all those small collisions will tend to average out that debris's speed and direction until it forms an accretion disk and starts clumping back together, either into proto-moons or just chunks that deorbit orbit together, though only for very large amounts of matter, such as in our case of an advanced civilization with trillions of tons of orbital infrastructure getting wrecked. So if we're considering Kessler Syndrome as a Fermi Paradox solution, a reason a developed civilization might fail to colonize space, we need to remember that the Kessler Syndrome they caused themselves probably wouldn't last long. Most of the debris from any early spacefaring civilization is going to be in low orbit, exactly where clouds of debris will have the shortest durations. For low orbit, think a timeline of a century for it to be pretty clear, though it's going to be an exponential decay, with the supermajority of initial debris gone in mere months. Now, we should differentiate between a few thousand tons of satellites and ships, like we have nowadays, and the millions or even trillions of tons of space stations, habitats, and orbital infrastructure that a more advanced civilization or our future selves might have in place. We also want to keep in mind that little pebbles of debris striking off an armored hull of a big space habitat has a very different effect than of hitting billions of square meters of thin but wide solar panels or mirrors or shades in orbit of a world. In a period of active spaceflight, you can potentially have tons of gas, dust, and small vaporized grains of debris acting as a wind, causing erosion or drag on objects in orbital space. Up in medium or high orbit, and certainly above geostationary orbit, debris can persist much longer, almost indefinitely in terms of civilization timelines, for distances significantly farther from Earth than its own radius though the perturbing effect of the Earth-Moon system is probably going to be too strong for any natural debris cloud to persist for geological timelines. The relative absence of any space debris of a natural variety hanging around Earth speaks volumes as to how quickly it tends to disappear, but the situation could be different on other planets. You could think of Saturn's rings as an extreme case of naturally occurring high-orbit Kessler syndrome, but you should keep in mind that Saturn's rings are out where its atmosphere is not a factor. Saturn also has moons with cryovolcanoes that replenish the rings, and shepherd moons that keep the material of the rings from escaping Saturn's orbit but also help keep it from coalescing into more moons. For many years we believed Saturn's rings were inherently unstable, 100 million years old at most, formed by a collision with a comet, but based on data from Cassini, NASA now believes they might be billions of years old, possibly around since the formation of the solar system. So even though we've been at this orbital mechanics thing for decades and doing it with ever more powerful computers and detailed models, the universe can still surprise us with what structures can turn out to be stable. Now if there are any alien creatures living on Saturn, the difficulties of space exploration is probably the least of their problems, but let's consider the case of a civilization developing on a natural Kessler planet that happens to be more hospitable to life than Saturn. Worlds have debris clouds, both from sweeping junk up from space and from occasional ultra-hard collision. Indeed, we believe our entire moon formed from one such collision and the huge cloud around proto-Earth it left, and we imagine the majority of that cloud either fell back down to Earth or wandered off elsewhere in the solar system. Smaller collisions of the dinosaur killer size or less are going to send debris up into space. For that matter, while a volcano, even the super-powerful kind, cannot throw debris into orbit here on Earth, worlds of lesser gravity might be able to get that. A tectonically active low-gravity world might have a constant debris cloud replenished by its own volcanoes. Nonetheless, the main way a planet would tend to get a big debris cloud would be the capture of a new small moon that was inside the Roche limit of the planet. The Roche limit is the distance an object held together by its own gravity can be from a bigger object, like Earth, and not be pulled apart by that object's bigger gravity basically where that other object exerts more force upward on that smaller body's surface than its own gravity pulls the ground back down, causing the dot to rain upward. For context here, an object a thousand kilometers across, like Ceres, which is either a dwarf planet or the largest asteroid, has a surface gravity of just 3% what Earth's is, If it were orbiting a thousand kilometers above Earth, with its further side 2,000 kilometers up, then that low side would experience 75% of Earth normal gravity on its surface, pulling down to Earth, while it was pulling back with only 3%, which would be fine except its far side, 2,000 kilometers up, the gravity of Earth is down under 60%, and while the Earth and Ceres are pulling material in the same direction, it still means there's a huge difference in the force on the surface of the dwarf planet turned moon, in excess of the pull of that planet, and the lower surface is going to start coming off. Eventually the object gets ripped apart. Though think of this as a slow erosion, not an explosion. Now the Roche limit for any given object, and smaller object, is actually based on the mass of that object. Bigger massed objects can be closer before shredding, and the material of that object, as a big pile of gravel falls apart easier than a metallic asteroid or an artificial satellite or any other object held together by forces besides just gravity. Nonetheless, for objects significantly less massive than Earth, many orders of magnitude less, that Roche limit is 18 to 28,000 kilometers in altitude above Earth, or 12,000 to 20,000 miles, depending on how rigid that object is or how fluid. That places it above medium orbit in high orbit or even a little above geostationary. Beneath that limit, it will fall apart, spreading debris, and again that's where all our own stuff is, so they will get hit by that debris. In addition to that, when we talk about Modern Era Kessler Syndrome, we are talking about collision cascades occurring while the entire orbital infrastructure and junkyard combined masses less than a megaton, while a kilometer-wide rock ball would mass thousands of megatons, and the one that allegedly killed the dinos is estimated at 7 million megatons, and both are rather small to be contemplating a roast limit breakup. So any object disintegrating from gravitational tidal forces near a planet is dumping millions or billions of times more debris as it goes, and as an example, a small moon like Phobos around Mars, which isn't that far over the Roche limit for Mars, if it got hit by a decent-sized asteroid, might get whacked down toward that Roche limit even as millions of tons of debris sprayed loose and begin orbiting with it to cause constant collision cascades. Which might further drop that moon, eroding it over a protracted time while causing a near constant replenishing of debris around that planet, each bit of which increases the odds any near miss asteroid passing by that planet will get whacked and set off another collision cascade. Earth's single enormous moon tends to prevent us having other smaller and closer moons, and its perturbation makes orbital debris shorter lived before burning up in our atmosphere. Many think our big moon is a major factor in why Earth has life, what we call a great filter of the Fermi Paradox, however that is speculative and Earth without our moon is big enough, it might have several smaller and closer moons, much like the gas giant planets have, and they have all got rings of debris and moons which may have undergone Roche limit shredding before or even currently. Many solar systems might have far more asteroids or temporary heavy amounts of them, any collision in a solar system between larger bodies will generate them, as would any supernova inside a reasonable distance, and while such swarms of deadly hypersonic bullets and bigger asteroids is not very friendly to life, like the dinosaurs, there is likely to be a number of middle grounds or scenarios where a planet might have rich debris rings or clouds for tens of thousands of years or longer while still enjoying a livable surface. Incidentally, you can actually get Kessler Syndrome at the solar scale, and it is a real concern for K2 civilizations, Dyson Swarm Builders, not just those around one planet, especially for a fully-built habitat swarm which might have hundreds of Earth's worth of material in the form of rotating habitats, and in thin solar collectors and heat radiators. Amusingly, solar systems where such cascades were common would also be great candidates for panspermia or a natural solar ecology like we hypothesized in our Space Whales and Void Ecology episodes. Anyway, could such a civilization actually get into space? one that came from a Kessler planet? The simple answer is yes, but with more effort. It is also possible they might look up, see that, run the numbers when they are still barely inventing rockets, and decide it was a doomed effort. On the other hand, a civilization with such rings would be enjoying constant meteor showers, which probably means getting magnetized lodestone and other heavenly bounties showered down on them while they are at it. This might make them really into sky watching, which depending on the debris cloud might make seeing stars harder too, at least near the equator where we would tend to expect debris to be densest. They might long to go to the stars or have an Icarus or Tower of Babel-like fear of doing so. I could see it going either way. A lot depends on how dense and stable the debris was. As an example, a megaton debris of randomly scattered rock, decaying over thousands of years, is not going to pose too big a worry or offer much of a light show, as it will be parallel to what Earth already gets from the solar system in a year. I could also imagine a culture seeing it, seeing that each year the debris decreased, and viewing it as some divine barrier, lessening over time and a challenge those willing to risk it soonest to get out and claim the grand prize of the galaxy. Or alternatively, as an imposed barrier to prevent them going out to the stars before they were ready, as a variation of the Star Trek Prime directive. On the other hand, the shattered remains of a 10 trillion ton space rock like Phobos, struck by a smaller asteroid 10,000 years before, and whose initial carnage nearly obliterated the civilization there at the time, might see civilization slowly rebuilt under 10,000 years of fiery meteoric rain of a billion tons of space junk dropping a year in sizes between gravel and houses. Constant strikes from above might tilt a feeling to travel to space too, but if you got up there, you would be inside a constant cloud of debris that would be rough to walk around. So they might be forever planet-bound, especially if civilizations with weapons of mass destruction tend to have short half-lives when occupying a single planet, as many think would be likely. Still, that would be a beautiful place to live, albeit in a deadly sort of way that probably would have meteors up there with weather and fire deaths in terms of frequency. This ties back into the notion that Kessler Syndrome might just be something that's constantly ongoing, like the way storms are and other weather constantly impacting sailing ships or farming or almost everything else. A civilization might clear major cascades, but also might tolerate a constant haze of junk and dust and gas as the background orbital smog and little that comes with space travel. They might expect everyone to either armor their ships or facilities enough to handle that background orbital smog, or build those facilities elsewhere. And there is plenty of elsewhere to put things, after all, an orbital mirror or power collector does not need to be within a few thousand kilometers of Earth it could be way up beyond geostationary, or honestly even out past the Moon. Earth's hill Sphere, the volume it gravitationally dominates and in which orbit of Earth is possible, is 1.5 million kilometers, just under a million miles, four times the distance the Moon is, and 64 times the volume of cislunar space. It is also roughly 40 times the distance geostationary is from Earth, and 64,000 times that volume and low, medium, and high orbit are all inside that geostationary and geosynchronous radius. Low orbit is hundreds of times less wide than Earth's hill sphere, and a billion times smaller in volume, so there's a lot more space to leave a big power satellite array beaming energy down to Earth. So too, the orbital velocity of the moon around Earth is around a kilometer a second. Everywhere out past the moon is even lower, so you are down to collision speeds happening at bullet speed or less out there. Not that such speeds are trivial, emptying a machine gun on the side of a space station is not likely to be healthy for it, but there's a big difference between the energies in a bullet, or the energies in rock or debris sprayed by a hurricane or tornado, and one's moving at hypersonic velocities. Kinetic energy and collision damage go with the square of velocity, 10 times the speed, 100 times the damage. And you need not go that far either, out past the moon, as even up a geostationary you are already looking at a thousand times more volume for things to be spread out and those carrying a tenth the kinetic energy. Now, clearance of debris is possible. In a quick and dirty way, if it happened tomorrow, we could prepare everyone for an EMP attack then intentionally set off a lot of nukes in low orbit. That would help a lot, and nukes are a way to blow a temporary launch window through too, for a very thick haze. Now the better way is probably a mixture of absorptive armor for minimizing cascades and laser brooms for sweeping up the debris. We are very fond these days of ablative armor, armor that blows off chunks of itself as part of its damage mitigation method, such as some tanks now use, but that's the opposite of the way we want to minimize debris. Such armor also helps your ship survive in a cloud of debris if there's a lot of it around in survivable bits. A lot of heavily used orbital space might eventually take on a sandblasting quality, where there's just a lot of finer grain stuff too small to be individually tracked or cleared. This still permits orbital infrastructure, but will require more mass and armory on all ships and facilities, and also represent an additional wear and tear on them, as they are essentially all sitting in a constant hypersonic sandstorm. Once the debris is there though, what you need to sweep it away is either explosions or what we call the laser broom. This is a fairly simple concept, as it relies on hitting objects with a laser beam to superheat its surface enough to give off some gas, shoving it away like a little brief rocket plume. You can do this from many angles, but for conceptual purposes, assume it was done from above. Hit the debris so each emitted a quick squirt of gas upward and was shoved a bit downward, putting them out of the orbit into Earth's atmosphere. This incidentally is how a lot of clearance with nuclear bombs works too, the radiation ablates some material off and gives the object to shove downward, or onto a more eccentric and shorter lived trajectory. You can vaporize stuff in its entirety but that takes more energy and requires deploying a laser able to blow objects apart rather than simply burn a quick micron thick layer off the surface. Which sounds good, but objects can include ships and facilities, not just debris, and those lasers don't care what they aim at presumably, thus all subject to hijacking. So lower powered and more numerous and also automated lasers is a good approach, as in space, hitting an object with a laser is child's play, so you have a big radar grid and lots of smaller lasers, automatically targeting smaller objects, much smaller than a person, and not next to anything large or that doesn't have a friend-foe transmitter. There are tons of reasons you want a big radar grid and laser system around a planet that we have discussed on other occasions, and it would be relatively cheap to deploy, especially if you're using such components for those other reasons, and just let them get retasked as needed to handle debris instance major and minor, routine and urgent. I should note that any civilization with a developed orbital infrastructure is likely to have those constant bright objects and fiery tails in the sky too, and so we might see a lot of use of non-visible lasers, infrared or UV, and collection drones trying to snag debris rather than roast it. That will depend a lot on the economics involved, and whether the public enjoys lots of small and harmless meteor showers or not. So Kessler Syndrome is definitely a threat to our future in space and one we and any other civilization should take seriously, natural or the product of our own voyaging out, but it is a manageable one and possibly a fairly majestic problem to see managed. We'll be discussing some of those harder-to-manage obstacles to reaching space in this weekend's episode. So we have a couple of announcements along with our upcoming schedule, but first, we spent a lot of time talking about orbital mechanics today, and those can be confusing to folks, but do become a lot clearer with some practice and examples, and there's some really good explanations and interactive quizzes in Brilliant's course on Gravitational Physics. Their hands-on, visual approach to learning is the most effective way for you to learn, and their ever-growing catalog of courses in math, science, and computer science give you many topics to pick from. Another thing we were talking about was how clearing space debris in the future might require automated lasers to make split-second decisions to fire. And while these days the idea of quick computer decisions is very familiar, we are often less familiar with how those computers make such decisions. For instance, did you know most of these decisions can be broken down into very simple processes? Brilliant's Computer Science Fundamentals course explains this kind of procedural with easy-to-understand visuals like this decision tree letting you learn in bite-sized pieces and tackle big topics one simple explanation at a time. To get started for free, visit Brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur or click on the link in the description, and the first 200 people will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. We have a couple quick announcements for our schedule and we'll start by wishing a quick happy 91st birthday to physicist and inventor James West, who among 250 other patents can claim credit for the technology that runs 90% of all modern microphones, particularly small ones. As someone who spends a lot of time recording and on the phone, I'm rather grateful for those audio improvements he and others have made. When you have a speech impediment, anything that makes you easier to understand by phone or recording is very appreciated. Second, speaking of audio, I mentioned that ring planets like Saturn could be thought of as extreme cases of natural Kessler syndrome, and while rings of ice and rock would be a real problem if you lived on a plant's surface and wanted to leave, they would be great if you happened to be a squid-like creature that lived in the vacuum in those rings. If you're curious what life in the rings of a gas giant might be like, I highly recommend a short audio story called Momentum, written by my friend and longtime SFI editor, Jerry Gorn, who co-wrote this episode and several others. You can listen to Momentum and a lot of other very unique sci-fi and fantasy from Jerry that I've thoroughly enjoyed over on his channel Jerry's Stories or at the link in the description, and I'll include a code for that and put it in the episode description. Jerry was also the one who suggested today's episode, though I decided to split it into two to contemplate its effects on the Fermi Paradox and add in some other space-faring hurdles, like not having fossil fuels or other scenarios, natural or artificial, which might imprison civilization on their homeworld, and that will be our topic for this weekend's Sci-Fi Sunday episode. One other case folks often mention for that are worlds where the gravity is too high to let them send rockets into space, super-Earths, and so next week we will examine those and how life might evolve on them and how we might colonize them. Then we'll finish out February with a look at building water worlds and marine space habitats. And our next live stream Q and A on Sunday, February twenty seventh. Then we'll jump into March with a look at nuclear transmutation and alchemy. Now, if you want to learn when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and share it with others, and leave a comment below. You can also join the conversation on any of our social media forums, find our audio-only versions of the show, or donate to support future episodes, and all those options and more are listed in the links in the episode description. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.